Hello and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Alloyan. Our show topic today is Parallels in Patriotism, Educating America One Generation at a Time. Our guest is Adam Strom. He is the Director of Reimagining Migration, an education project working with a team from UCLA and Harvard Graduate School of Education. The focus of their work is to bring history and understanding of past immigration to classrooms and educational leaders across the globe. He is the former Director of Scholarship and Innovation at Facing History in Ourselves, an organization dedicated to helping educators, schools, and communities learn about ethics, social responsibility, and justice. He has written extensively on issues including George Washington's rebuke to bigotry, stories of identity and religion, American civil rights movement, crimes against humanity and civilizations, including the Jewish Holocaust and the Armenian Genocide. Let's welcome Adam Strom. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, we all know that human migration uh, is a phenomenon that has been occurring for thousands. And I was saying hundreds of, th hundreds of thousands of years. We've been migrating since before we had cities, before we had national borders, before we had walls, before we really even defined the communities the way that we do. This is, this is actually what we have shared as humans. And our nation was built based upon this migration, was it not? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There are several migrations that are essential to the founding in the Amer American history. Actually, Franklin Roosevelt, he was speaking in the 30s to the daughters of the American Revolution, and Franklin Roosevelt reminded the, the, the daughters of the American Revolution, he said, you know, we're all the descendants of migrants, of immigrants, he said. We're all the descendants of immigrants and patriots, he said. Of course, there's a darker side to that, which was also the forced migration of Africans that also is part of the history of the United States. Slavery. Slavery. But, you know, so parts of the slavery experiences as forced migration out of Africa it had other, I mean, horrors that were associated. But, yeah, absolutely. But there's the migration west, right, which we think of as westward expansion. Of course, with that was the forced migration of American Indians. It's really, and the, and the great migration of African Americans out of the south. And, of course, the waves, which I don't love that word, you know, the, 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 the continuous uh, sweep of immigrants into, into this country and who are pulled here uh, and forced out of their own homelands. But, but as history will tell us, America was not always welcoming. Why do you think that is? I think that humans are not always welcoming. I mean, what, I've been thinking a lot about this. We, we, we seem to be really lousy with difference human beings at first. You know, I, w I wish people, you know, we, we talk about xenophobia, this fear of the other. I, I'd love to see us express an, the opposite, you know, a curiosity, a natural warm yeah. curiosity towards the other. But that, that doesn't seem to be the way that humans are. There's always a skepticism. I mean, have you, have you ever been the newcomer in a group? You know, you walk in and there's this natural, who, who are you? Mm -hmm. and, and what are you doing? And so we can talk about, you know, what, what, that about? I, I think that there's concern that culture will change. I mean, you hear familiar stories, actually, across generation, fear that the culture is going to change. Dilution. Yes, dilution, that the language will be lost, that there will be jobs taken away. And, uh, and yet, actually, with a larger historical perspective, one thing we can say about immigration and jobs is that it's often been actually a great job generator. 
You know, immigrants have come and become entrepreneurs. A huge percentage of today's entrepreneurs are actually immigrants, and that's not so different than the past. But, uh, but it isn't to say that those aren't concerns. Mm -hmm. the, the question I have as an educator is how can we help young people develop a perspective so when they start to hear these familiar refrains, I want them to be able to have a reference point and say, you know, the concern that you hear in contemporary politics about immigrants, Ben Franklin had the same thing. Ben Franklin, the 1755, right? He's in the colony of Pennsylvania. Ben Franklin is worried because there's all these German immigrants. And he said, you know, they're going to Germanize us. Oh, Instead really? of us anglifying them, he said, you know, we can't change them any more than they can change their complexion. His concern, actually interesting, among issues of language, was that Germans were not, not the right complexion for him. So it's, it's interesting as we think about these changing group identities. Right? And we see the parallels with that today. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's really helpful to be able to say, wait, that's been, that's been one thread. The other thread is George Washington, right at the beginning of the country. He's, he says, I dream this country will be a place for exiles and asylum seekers. I mean, it's not I'm using today's language, but mm -hmm. he really does hope this will be a place for exiles. We don't hear that very much. I've never heard that statement about George Washington. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, we don't, we don't, first of all, we don't talk and teach about migration very much. We, no, we don't. We may have our own family stories, Sometimes those family stories are very much alive. Sometimes they've been lost. Uh, sometimes they've been lost intentionally. You know, there were, there were periods in U.S. history where being different was really uncomfortable. German Americans during World War I were very much forced to give up their identities. You know, the, there were places in the United States during World War I where German shepherds were burned. Oh dogs as an attempt to make a statement about German immigrants in the country. German language schools had been quite popular. As a matter of fact, the first bilingual case in the U.S. Supreme Court over bilingual education is about German immigrants. The German immigrants win. They have the right to teach in their own language. But we, we've lost these conversations. We don't know very much about them. And because to go back to the German story, because of the pressure of World War I, I think a lot of Germans became reluctant to express their own identities. And you wonder if there's an internalized, we, shouldn't, we couldn't express our identities, maybe you shouldn't too, instead of recognizing that maybe that pressure historically wasn't fair either. Mm -hmm. Well, as an Armenian-American, I remember the stories that my, uh, my parents told me about my grandparents. They were not welcomed. My grandfather worked in the steel industry in the steel mills and all of that during um, the, one of the world wars, um, they had tomatoes thrown at them. So from that standpoint, um, I understand, you know, the Irish had it. You know, they were told no Irish need apply um, and many others. So I guess my question is today, how can we educate people so that these, these prejudice, prejudices don't continue the cycle? So I, it's interesting that you started with your own family story because one thing I think that we can help people do is tap into their own family histories as a way to begin to develop some perspective. 
And then as we start to put our stories in conversation with one another, for example, I'd love to talk to you about the experience of your great, great your grandparents and how my, my Jewish relatives are coming into the country at the same time. And I'd love to know what was similar and different. Through Ellis Island. Yeah, exactly. What was similar about that? What was different about that? How is that different than somebody whose family just came from the Dominican Republic or India or China? So there's, there's stories that we can access. But then I think that there is taking migration seriously as a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say this is what humans have in common. All of us, at some point or another, migrated by choice or not in our families. Most of us have migrated by choice or not in our own lives, if, it, if it's just down the block, if it's from town to town, if it's cross-country. But there are, if you look right now in the world, there are a billion people on the move. There are 255 to 258 million people living in a country outside of their birth. So we need to be able to tap into our literature, into our history, into our science to help us develop a perspective so we can start to compare. Well, why did, pe- why did people come to this country in the past? How is that similar and different Fle- to today? Fleeing right? persecution, fleeing what's today is gangs. In the in my grandparents' gener- generation, was f- fleeing genocide. Fleeing. And increasingly, increasingly, there are now what uh, my colleague Marcelo Suarez Orozco is the dean of the Graduate School of UCLA, uh, Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. He's talking about the increased catastrophic migrations, people leaving war genocide, mass violence, uh, and increasingly climate change. Exactly. And, you know, if you start to think about it, not all of that is new. Why do the Irish leave? So the Irish leave. Right, they leave because of famine. That is an environmental disaster that's exacerbated by policies from the British colonial government there. That's not all that different. No, it's not. Than people leaving today. Now, What's different is when the Irish were coming, among other things, is that when the Irish were coming, there were actually no regulations on the number of immigrants that could come. As yeah, matter, they, they, right. could, they could come, get off the boats. Many of them ended up in Castle Clinton in New York or Castle Garden in New York and you know, in cities on the East Coast and were able to settle in. Fa- they faced a tremendous amount of hostile prejudice, uh, real anti-Catholic prejudice, anti-Irish prejudice, but uh, we're over time able to become really important, recognized contributors to American society. And then, within a generation, they did what a lot of people do. And this is a generalization. But uh, there's a great political cartoon from Thomas Nast. And so Thomas Nast was writing for Harper's Weekly, and he has this great uh, image of Irish immigrants standing on a wall, and they're celebrating that they're on the wall because they've made it. Mm And then there's Chinese immigrants at the bottom of the wall. And the uh, Irish are pushing down the ladder. And it's called throwing down the ladder by which they came. So part of the experience, it appears, of newcomers is to say, I'm not sure I want the next folks to come. The next guy in line. And there was the Chinese Exclusion Act, too, that was also passed to exclude yeah. Chinese laborers. Yeah, and we don't... For 60 years. Yeah, we don't know that history very well. So the Chinese... Right, so you mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act. It's passed in uh, 1882. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting because it's also at the period we think of the high point of immigration to the United States. So on the West Coast, the Chinese are not seen as welcome. 
But it's a year after that that Emma Lazarus pens The New Colossus. You know, give me your time. Your, your, I actually, I, I should know it. I should have it memorized. But it's, it's the words we imagine the Statue of Liberty the saying. The tide, uh, you're weak. You're, yeah. You're poor. And you're downtrodden, yeah. probably. Yeah. So, but uh, one of the issues today is this caravan, the, um, the talking about the caravan and all these people flooding the southern border illegally. Can you talk to that illegal issue? Yeah, yeah, I think, it, I think it's important. So one of the really powerful things that has happened primarily since World War II, we, uh, I'm, I'm going to back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. We've, we have not always been very welcoming to refugees. Armenian refugees came to this country after the genocide. Thank goodness it became a home for so many of them. During the Holocaust, about two-thirds of the country did not want Jewish immigrants to come here. There's a 67.4%. Mm-hmm. In 1938, you know, you know, right at the time of Kristallnacht, Americans don't want these folks to come. After the war, there was a recognition that we need to guarantee the right to migration. That's part of keeping peace and actually protecting human life. So there's the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which has Mm -hmm. rights to migration. Three different rights are there, and then there's a refugee convention. And part of that process, the legal process that's been developed, is that allows people to declare asylum and to apply for asylum, and that's a standard legal procedure. Mm -hmm. Countries do this their own ways, decide who qualifies. Uh, And so what's happening at the southern border is actually people who are trying to legally apply for asylum. Mm-hmm. You know, countries aren't forced to accept all asylum seekers, but there is a legal process to do that. I, can you imagine? I've been thinking about this a lot. In, you've, you've been fleeing violence. You come to the U.S. border, and these are folks who are actually hoping not to sneak in. They're actually hoping that they can literally they declare yes. the, the papers. And imagine being told you have to wait. And now increasing huge numbers of people sitting on the borders. It reminds me a lot of a story during the Holocaust of a ship called the St. Louis. It's a story of a, there were these Jewish refugees who left Hamburg, Germany in 1939. And many of them thought they had visas that they would be able to get to Cuba. They're denied entry of the Cuban government. The boat goes hundreds of yards off the coast of Miami, so close that people get in boats and their cousins are face-to-face with people in the ship rooms. And the U.S. government decides, as part of the entire world in that, mm-hmm. that moment, to say, no, we don't want them. So the ship has to go back. And, you know, you think about what is people fleeing persecution, hoping for a new home. Mm-hmm. So I... I, I'm not saying that we have to take everybody, but I'm saying that there's a legal process and we have to recognize there's consequences of those decisions. And who is responsible when people are fleeing violence? Well, there's a humanitarian issue here. I, I, I liken it to a domestic violence victim. You know, you flee for your life. I know there's judges out there yeah. that will say, well, you left because you didn't like housework. I. I've had that said in Mm. in a courtroom. But people don't flee because they don't like housework. They flee for their lives. They know their life is in danger, and they're trying to save themselves. So we need to recognize that. Like I said, it's akin to a domestic violence victim. You don't have time to get paperwork. You run out that door. So the door is our southern border. 
and we need to put judges and people at those entryways. And we have to find a way so we don't operate in a crisis mode. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what education can do, is help us develop a broader perspective. It doesn't say this is a roadmap for what you have to do, but it helps us get perspective. We have a world in which leaders have not been educated to even think about these issues. It's as if every migration story is a current event. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we, it's, why, it's funny, it's, it's almost like our instinct. We come back and we, every time one of these controversies pops up, we say, oh, wait a minute, there must have been a historical echo, and of course there were, mm-hmm. but this is never intentional. It all just, we, we get educated on the fly by journalists. Right, right. But there's a tendency to vilify before getting the information. And I don't know, I think maybe the media is partly to blame with that, too. I, I don't quite know. Uh, so it's actually part of our work. So one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about is that there, it's, it's, uh, there's some basic media literacy work, actually. Mm-hmm. It, I, I've actually found that there's actually quite a bit of good reporting on issues of migration, but people, uh, people don't read it mm-hmm. because people tend to read what they think already. Right. Social media is not very good at uh, carrying complex stories, right? It, these are, these are hu- stories of human lives on the move are complex. They're not easily understood in a tweet. Mm-hmm. So what, is your, what does your organization do? What do you do to help change the paradigm, so to speak? So, so the first thing that we're doing is developing an educational framework that will really help educators think about who are immigrant origin kids, what are some of the challenges that they're facing in school, What are the challenges that their peers have in understanding the story of migration? So to shifting our perspective of the child, Mm -hmm. starting to think about what is actually the educational value in understanding about issues of migration, because right now this is nobody's priority, right? What ends up happening very typically is immigration into school becomes the English language learner, Mm -hmm. and the success of the English language learner is that they learned English. That means that nobody's really understood immigration or migration. You've just measured whether this kid could speak English. And that's a great asset. That's a great skill. But we've missed an educational opportunity. So we're developing a framework that will help people build curriculum. And we're building and collecting great resources. And we're also working on mapping what does it look like to create an educational environment for a world on the move. And we're giving teachers uh, materials so they can do an assessment of their own strengths. So then they'll know where they can go, where they should go, actually, to get help. And the world is even more on the move with this climate change that's been occurring. I mean, that happened in Darfur. They had that, that genocide over there because of, you know, they weren't able to grow some of their crops and they were fighting over and the, the land. And you don't have to go that far. You could go to my, I mean, I'll bring it personal. My, my niece lived in Houston. She doesn't live in Houston anymore because her house was flooded out. Just like so many people last fall, she now lives in St. Louis. Through the fires in California, it's bring hundreds of thousands of people had to flee the fires in, Cal- in California. So it's not that far away. It's, uh, it's going to take us a while, I think, to get used to these stories and understand the larger frame. But if we count to two, so one, two, during that time, somebody around the world was displaced. Right, right. Now, uh, we talked a little about um, the southern border. Let's get a historical perspective on Ellis Island. That is no longer there. Can you talk well, about that? Yeah, sure. It's, it's there. It's a lovely museum. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so Ellis Island is a, you know, it's a federal immigration station. But actually, before Ellis Island, 
most immigrants arriving into New York actually came right into Battery Park in what they called Castle Garden, or some people mm -hmm. call it Castle Clinton. That's still there, too. There's a little fort not far from where you get the boat for the uh, Statue of Liberty. There, again, there weren't strong immigration laws for most of that time. So Ellis Island opens in 1892. Between 1892 and the 50s, about 40 million immigrants come through that. Uh, excuse me, 40 million. There are about 40% of the people in the United States mm -hmm. can trace their ancestry through Ellis Island at, su at some point. And so, yeah, at some point in time. So there were, for the most part, until 1924, this was a period of relatively open immigration, with the exception of people coming from Asia, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which mm -hmm. then was expanded in its own way right. in the teens. Uh, but what, what the, but the laws, for the most part, were literacy and health tests, and even literary te literacy tests are interesting because you know when people say, ah, oh, they got to learn to read. The literacy tests at Ellis Island were people reading in their own languages. Really? Yeah, actually, I just saw an example of one of the literacy tests in Armenian. Wow. Did, now, did they have to have uh, money and a way to support themselves as well? There were there were some there were some financial commitments, but even so, even that stuff kind of got phased mm. phased in as well. What ends up happening is in 1924, there had been anti-immigrant sentiment building mm -hmm. in the country. Uh, it was deeply associated with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in the United States in the 20s and the eugenics movement, which was uh, uh, kind of a, a pseudo-scientific movement that believed that we were being diluted racially. Mm -hmm. uh, this is all, of course, science debunked science and people say mm -hmm. useless. But literally, eugenicists helped to write the legislation. And what they did is they cut the number of immigrants who'd come from different groups in the last 10 or so years. So they didn't want, they, they cut down into small percentages of immigrants who are coming in. Instead of saying, let's use the percentage of immigrants who came last year, they went all the way back to 1890. And why did they go back to 1890? Because there were less Jews, there were less Italians, less Eastern Orthodox, less Greeks, less Armenians. So more uh, Europeans, yeah, basically. More, you know, a certain, really a certain kind of European, mm -hmm. right? So that, that, and that, that law, for the most part, stayed in place until 1965 mm -hmm. with the Hart-Seller Act. And it's, when Lyndon Johnson signs the, the uh, Immigration Act of 1965, for him, this isn't about bringing new people to the country. It's basically just an ethic of fairness. He said that was a racially discriminatory law. He sort of sees it as a continuation of civil rights legislation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he does it with, with a Holocaust survivor standing there. And here in Massachusetts, uh, he saw it as a continuation of the role that John Kennedy played. Uh, Kennedy had given a speech, actually, in 63 uh, for the Anti-Defamation League and talked about America as a nation of immigrants. The ADL liked mm -hmm. it so much, they asked him to write a book. He, he wrote a book. And, uh, and then uh, it was really work that was picked up. Teddy Kennedy was asked to help mm -hmm. you know, rally the votes mm -hmm. in Congress. Mm -hmm. And so when the act is signed, it's very, very powerful. And it's not saying, we're going to change the country. This is about fairness. Mm -hmm. And it's about patriotism because if you're a true patriot, you, you are an immigrant, you will recognize you are an immigrant, and you will be welcoming of other immigrants. There won't be the hypocrisy or the false fears that we see 
that are inculcating our media today. It's something that the U.S. can be very proud of. We should be proud that we've become a country that has had different people come from different places and have been able to rebuild their lives together and create these amazingly interesting, diverse communities. Our food is better because of immigration. Our language is more interesting. And our technology. Uh, Unbelievable. I mean, we have the best minds from all over the world come here. But think of how the language, literally the language we use, has changed in beautiful ways. People talk about this idea of assimilation or integration. So assimilation is you're supposed to come and become just like the folks... Mm-hmm. who ex- were there previously. I actually think it's kind of great that the U.S., for the most part, is a story of integration. This is integration. The U.S. has this great history of bringing new- newcomers' lives, foods, customs into our, into our country. And uh, that's, I-, I think, incredibly, incredibly patriotic. Mm-hmm. And they help. Uh, they do a lot of the jobs that uh, American-born people don't want to do or can't do. And I think they, they add so much to the economics of this country. But it is clear that that, uh, the, that diversity is added. Uh, I mean, literally, to go back to food metaphors, a lot of spice to, spice <laughs> to the country. There, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an overly optimistic story, too. It's, it's been hard. The, the, the discrimination newcomers have faced should not be taken lightly, nor should the poverty that many newcomers came with. I was reading stories of, uh, of a Jewish immigrant, uh, uh, there's a great book by Anzia Yazersko, who's a Jewish writer writing in English at the turn of the 20th century. And the family was so poor that they thought it was frivolous when she bought a toothbrush. Hmm. So these are hard lives that people have come. I'm reading, I, I, I was reading a letter from an Irish uh, immigrant who came during the potato famine, and she, she, she's writing in how she wants her mother to come. But she writes to her mother, but you better be prepared to work hard. Then she crosses it out. I guess it's too, she doesn't want to insult her mother. But, but, it's, but it's been hard work. And there's actually a lot to learn about the story of how immigrants acculturate mm-hmm. and become a part of new society. Because when people get worried about whether newcomers today are going to fit in, it's the story of our past. Mm-hmm. One, actually, one of the most powerful letters I just found is a, a letter of Jewish immigrants writing into a to a Yiddish newspaper in 1933, and they're complaining, oh, my God, our parents, all they do is they, they speak Yiddish. And worse than that, they speak it in front of our Christian friends. And the, the, letter, the editor writes back and says, you know, maybe their parents are ashamed of their accents. But that's a concern you hear people raise today. A generation later, later there's another letter to the, the same newspaper. And the letter is a, a Jewish immigrant saying, I'm writing to you in English because I don't speak Yiddish. I, d- I don't know the traditions that my grandparents had. So we should be careful about what we wish for. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, it's a fabulous thing to become part of the dominant society. It's a disaster if you ask people to give up their identities entirely. We, 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 we all lose. They lose and we lose. Mm-hmm. We're stronger with all the identities together. Yeah. And newcomers are struggling just like people in the past. I could, I could put Yumpa Lahiri's words back against the, the, uh, the immigrants from 100 years ago. And, the, and the, the themes are the same. You know, every immigrant journey has the same four pieces. Mm-hmm. There's life before you come, which starts to give you a sense of why people are leaving. Then there's the journey. Then there's what people call a transplantation shock. Oh, my God, 
what am I doing here? <laughs> and, you know, like, uh, like plants when you transplant them, they, they can either, you know, grow strong, or if that soil doesn't have, you know, enough nutrients, the plants will wilt. And then there's the story of acculturation. And so what we can control, you know, the non-immigrants, we should think about what's the soil like? Are we creating this a, so- a soil in Fertile which people... Soil, are, right. right. Uh, just in closing, I, I have one question. When our ancestors came here, were they all self-supporting, or was that something? That's a, that's a great question. So, there, so what's really interesting, and this has been true of generations of immigrants, you'll find the communities support each other. So it's the Irish Immigrant Aid Society supporting the Irish, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the Chinese Immigrant Aid Society. And now people would say, oh, no, they're clustering together. But what actually those stories are communities bonding together. It's a beautiful act of civic civic pride. And and responsibility. And responsibility. And often a first step to becoming involved in government. So, you know, I've worked in an Irish community. Now I have a reputation. Now, baby, I'm going to run for city council. So I see the, oh, so that support is offered by the community, but it's often a step in. Well, great. It was wonderful talking you. with you. Thank you so much. This has thank been you. quite enlightening. It's been a pleasure. I want to thank our guest, Adam Strawn, for sharing his research and opinions on the history of immigration in the U.S. and abroad. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guests, visit The Legal Edition online at thelegaledition.com. As always, this information is for general educational purposes only. It is not to be construed or relied upon as legal business or professional advice. And please consult a qualified practitioner as to your legal, business, or professional needs. And again, don't forget, subscribe online, follow us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter.